Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow and enjoy the episode. Good morning, everyone. As always, so good to see you. So we're continuing in the book of James. We're coming to the end of it now. Uh, It's an eight-part series, and this is the seventh part of James. And so you can well imagine we're in the latter part of the book of James. So if you haven't been around or if you're visiting, as I said, the good news is you can play catch-up. It is on our website, on our app, and uh, have a look at the podcasts, and you can get the different messages there. So you don't need to miss out on anything, because there is a flow, even though James does seem to jump around a bit. In essence, everything ties in wonderfully well, and we'll see some of that this morning. Okay, so we are into the end of chapter 4. So you don't need to turn there unless you prefer looking at your version or translation or your Bible or your phone or your iPad, but it will come up behind me. But we're going to read from chapter 4 and and from verse 13 through to 17, and then we're going to jump into chapter 5. Sound good? All right, here we go. So this is James speaking, writing, and he says, now listen. Now listen, why? Because something important is about to be said. And as much as those hearers and, and, and those who were sitting under his audience then, the same is true for us today. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Sounds like a lot of people I know, hey? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Some translations say you boast in your pride. All such boasting is evil. Why? Because it's more about you and your accomplishments than it is about God. That's what James is saying here. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now that's often referred to as the sin of omission. Because let me remind you, sin is not only doing the wrong thing, but it's also not doing the right thing. Both are sin. And so this first section, you have to understand, is written to believers to wealthy business people in the church who knew what they should be doing with their finances but weren't necessarily doing it. In other words, they weren't honoring God with their wealth. And so James is addressing in many ways a self-reliance and a self-confident confidence in these wealthy believers, a confidence in their ability to make money and then to use it and spend it as they see fit in whatever they in in whatever way they want to mm. this tongue and brain aren't working well together this morning hopefully it'll improve eh? but here's the thing they had forgotten that everything they have comes from God not by their wisdom not their intellect not their skill not their proficiency but everything is a gift from God true for them And true for now. And I love David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29 because he hits the mark here when he says in verse 11 and 12, everything in heaven and earth is yours. 
wealth and honor come from you. As true as it was then, it's true of today. But then the second thing we see with these wealthy believers is that they had also forgotten about the brevity of life. That life on this earth doesn't last for last forever. In fact, life is like a mist in the Waikato. It's there in the morning, gone by lunchtime. That's the reality of life. And that's the very illustration that James uses. It is so short. It is like this, a click in time, in eternity. That's what your life is. And he's saying, don't waste it. Don't be so absorbed with it. Don't just chase after things for your benefit and for your blessing. There's so much more at stake here. And the truth is these wealthy, these wealthy believers were living their lives and they were storing up their wealth as if it would be here forever, as if they would be here forever on this earth. And so for them, there was no thought of eternity. There was no thought of the, or even having any eternal thoughts or the eternal ramifications of their decisions that they would make here on earth. And James is challenging them about that. And so no doubt he's also reminding them of Jesus's warning about storing up for yourselves riches on earth rather than riches in heaven in Matthew chapter 6. And so these believers needed to involve God in their plans, including their financial plans. Or maybe more accurately, they needed to base their plans on God's will and on God's purpose. Not what they want, but on what God wants. And so for the believer, both then as well as now, to leave God out of your plans is to live independently of God. And can I say that is a scary and arrogant place to live. And then to boast about all that you've achieved and all that you've accomplished, can I say is equally flawed. It's conceited in every way. And James is challenging those believers then, just as he's challenging the believers of today. And so in many ways, James is reminding them that they have no control over their lives, over events that may happen, over their future, just like we have no control over what may happen tomorrow. And to think that we do equates to use the word James uses here, arrogance and self-sufficiency. Real challenge, eh? And so that's how he starts this part of the section. He's speaking to those believers who are out there doing business, making money, but are actually not honoring God with what they're doing and how they're using their finances. And I believe in many respects, our wealth is a test from God. How will we use it? Will we prove faithful and will we be responsible with that which he's given to us, that which he's blessed us with? And these believers were in the throes of failing that test because they'd become consumed with themselves and with everything that God had given them, they were holding on to. Challenge, eh? But James now moves on. He moves from these wealthy believers in the church to what I believe are wealthy or rich oppressors outside of the church. 
Now, let me just say there is some debate amongst those in the know whether he, James, is writing to believers who, who were in many ways acting like the world and were potentially backsliding, moving, moving further and further away from God's ideal, or whether it's a prophetic declaration and even damnation to those who are outside the church. And I've looked long and hard at this, and I've looked at both angles, both views of it, and I've come to the realization as I've researched, as I've looked at different commentaries and as I've read through the book of James over and over again in preparation for this series, is that actually I believe he's now writing to those who are outside of the church. Because listen to the language he uses here. And we pick it up in chapter 5 and in verse 1. He says, now listen. Remember he had said that to the previous group? Now listen, because something important is about to be said. Now he says the same. My thinking, you wouldn't be saying the same to the same group of people. But now he's saying, now listen, beware, be careful, be warned, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. The misery of God's judgment. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. If you look at the footnote in the NRV, it says can also mean the day of feasting. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Some very strong words here, hey? strong language that is being used. And so these people are not only failing the test of wealth, but worse, they are abusing and oppressing the poor. Either because they are poor or because they are Christian or both. But either way, they're oppressing these workers. And for these people, James doesn't have an appeal like he had in the case of the wealthy believers. He only has condemnation. And like the Old Testament prophets, he announces their destruction. And so what were these oppressors doing that would bring about God's judgment on them? Well, James gives four charges here. Firstly, he says, they hoarded their wealth. Verse 2 and verse 3. So much so that it had rotted. rotted. It had become corroded. It was moth-eaten. Notice the same analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6. And the end of their selfish hoarding, or the end result of their selfish hoarding, is that, is that others were going without. And so their crime was uncontrolled greed. It was a spirit of mammon that resulted in the poor being neglected and oppressed. And he charges them with that. Secondly, we see that they failed to pay the workers' wages. Verse 4. And the saddest thing of all is that they could afford to do it, but they chose not to. Why? Because these were dishonest 
unscrupulous rich farmers taking advantage of those who could not speak up for themselves or couldn't stand up for themselves. And you know, if there's one thing the Lord detests, it's when the downtrodden are being held down. If there is one thing the Lord hates, according to scripture, it is fraudulent and dishonest scales. And that's what these farmers were doing. But God sees. God hears the cries of the oppressed. And he responds. How? As the Lord Almighty. As the Lord of hosts. As the Lord of the heavenly armies. And he will vindicate those workers in due course. The third charge we see is that they lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5. And the Greek word for self-indulgence has the description of extravagance and opulence and wastefulness and all that would go with it. In other words, where the rich were getting fatter and fatter. And for them, each day was like a day of feasting of them gorging to their heart's content with no thought of tomorrow. But with it comes a dire warning. The day of feasting is their day of slaughter, where God will judge them and set them apart to be slaughtered. Strong language. But it's the same language Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, drag them off like sheep, to be butchered, set them apart for the day of slaughter. And these rich oppressors were on the brink of judgment, but they fattening themselves on the, on the poor with no awareness of the impending doom that was about to overtake them. And then the fourth charge we see here is that they had condemned and murdered the innocent man. Some translations will say the righteous man. One in the same thing. Verse 6. Now again whether that was literal murder. Or whether that was court cases or lawsuits against these people. We're not 100% sure. But condemned seems to indicate that the courts were involved. Whether that was to gain these workers wages. Uh, or whether it was to get their land, or whatever it may be, but it could have caused the poor to starve to death, maybe to die of diseases, and maybe that could have been the murder that James is referring to. But let me say either way, it's appalling. Whether it's literal murder or murder because of what they've stolen and taken away from these workers is an absolute travesty. It was appalling what they were doing, especially since these impoverished believers weren't opposing the rich in any way. They were defenseless, but they had God on their side. And he sees, and he will vindicate them, whether it's in their lifetime or in the age to come. But God sees it, and God will deal with it. Now, let me just say, this may have been written to rich oppressors outside of the church. But if we're not careful, and if we don't keep our hearts soft and our eyes on Jesus, you know what? We too can fall into these same practices. And maybe not to the same degree that we're reading about, 
But I don't think God is ultimately only concerned about different degrees. He's concerned with the heart. And if there's anything of this in our hearts, let me tell you, we need to fall on our knees and we need to repent. Where we have done any of this, in whatever way, in any, in, in, in to whatever degree, we need to ask God to forgive us and we need to make right. Eh? Because the truth is, this letter, as we've heard so often, may not have been written to us like all the other letters in Scripture, but it is written for us. And as such, we need to take cognizance of what James is saying here. It's what Romans 15.4 says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, and not just to teach us, but to warn us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope, and hopefully not fall into these same harmful and deceitful practices that these oppressors were, were exercising and living in. It's very quiet in here. Eh? Very sobering. And we can't just fob it off. We can't just say, well, that was written to people outside the, of the church. Sadly, there are people in the church who display the same sort of attitudes and actions that we read about here. Now, from verse 7 of chapter 5 through to the end of the chapter, in many ways is James' James's conclusion. But he now turns his attention from the oppressors to the oppressed. And this is what he writes. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, what did he mean by the Lord's coming? Well, the primary meaning of the Lord's coming is, of course, Jesus' return, his second coming. But the secondary meaning of the Lord's coming is a divine intervention. In other words, when God steps into the situation. And so he's saying to these oppressed Christians, he's saying, be patient until the Lord's coming. And he now gives three exhortations regarding patience. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, set an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now remember, James had spoken about perseverance prior to this. Eh? In James chapter 1, in verse 3 and 4, he spoke about the, how the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And how perseverance must finish its work. In other words, don't try and short circuit it. Don't try and um, abort it, but let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And now he uses three illustrations regarding patience, perseverance, that actually shows how we need this and our subsequent need for it. Eh? And the first one is the farmer. Now, the farmer doesn't plant a crop today and then expect a return tomorrow. No, there is a period of waiting. 
And sometimes that waiting can be really long, eh? depending what the crop is. But James is saying to us, as he was saying to those believers then, be patient, stand firm, and wait for the Lord's deliverance. You might be sitting here this morning, and that is a rhema word for you. God says to you, be patient. Stand firm and keep standing. Because deliverance will come. There will be a divine intervention. God will see it. God will deal with it. Whether it's here on this earth now or whether it's later. But God sees it. And God knows about it. And this is what James is saying. Be like that farmer. Stand firm and wait for the Lord's deliverance. But can I also say it's not a passive waiting. It's not hanging in there, white knuckles, just hoping somehow things will get better. No, there's actually, it's a waiting of, it's one of expectation, of anticipation of what God can do and of what God wants to do in the situation. And so when the fruit arrives for the farmer, when breakthrough comes for the believer, the farmer's not surprised. Why? Because he's been expecting it. He knows God's seen it. God's aware of it. And God will come through on his behalf or her behalf. And that's why for the farmer, the truth is if there is no rain, there is no harvest, there's no crop, there's no fruit. And you know, in the same way for the believer, if there is no trial, there is no blessing. And if there is no trial, in the same way, there's no maturity. There's no completeness, which God is ultimately after in your life and my life. Now, we don't like to hear that. But that's why James could say much earlier on chapter one, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because God is going to be working something out in it. And God's going to be producing things like hope and faith and all the other things that are so necessary for us to be who God's called us to be and to live as he wants us to live. And that's why as a believer, let me remind you that, can I, or let me ask you this or put this to you, can you allow your affliction to be an investment in your life and not a waste of time? Can you see some of these things you go through as, as opportunities for you to grow and not reasons for you to complain? Easier said than done, I know. But this is the pattern. This is the word of God, of Scripture. The encouragement that Scripture gives us. But here's the good news. The day will come when God will come through for them, just as he'll come through for you. Be it a divine intervention or when Christ returns to set things right and take these believers home. The second illustration or example he uses is the prophets. The prophets are those who, who spoke in the name of God. They spoke as his representatives and as such were severely persecuted. But the thing about the prophets is what James is getting at here is that they persevered in it. They didn't give up. Jonah in some f small way began to run away from God's call and what God had said, but that didn't last very long. Three days in the belly of a whale tends to sort things out. 
and he got back on God's agenda, God's page, and went and did what God called him to. But if you look across the board of the prophets, all of them were persecuted to varying degrees, but all of them continued to persevere in their ministry. They didn't give up. And this is what James is giving us here. In fact, the Greek word for persevered refers to long-suffering patience. And Jeremiah was a great example of that amongst many of the prophets. But you just look at a cursory reading of his life, of how at times he was put into stocks, other times thrown into prison, one time loaded into a dungeon. But he persisted. He persevered in his ministry without getting bitter and without getting vindictive. And James is saying these men serve as examples of long-suffering patience when it comes to being oppressed, mistreated, hard done by, whatever it may be, they serve as an example to us. And the third illustration he uses is of Job. And no doubt James could have been thinking about Job when he said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. James chapter 1 and verse 12. But notice here, James doesn't refer to Job's patience, as many of us do. Hey? Haven't you heard of it? They talk about the patience of Job. Well, let me just remind you, Job wasn't the most patient. Hey? <laughs> In fact, he complained a lot, moaned a lot about what he was going through and everything else that was happening in his life. But let me say, he was an outstanding example of perseverance in the most trying and difficult of situations. He stands out as an amazing example. And the result of his perseverance, to use James' words, what the Lord finally brought about is that God gave him twice as much as he had before because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, as James says. But Job had to wait for God to act. That's the key, eh? And while he waited, he had to learn to control his tongue, his temper, his temperament, and any other T's we can think of. Why? Because he knew, and he chose, he chose not to blame God. He wouldn't slander his friends, so-called friends, in the way that they'd slandered him. And what a lesson for us, eh? Because you know what? We'll miss out on the blessing of God if we try and justify ourselves in these difficult situations or if we try and take matters into our own hands when people come against us or say bad things about us or betray us or hurt us or whatever else we may go through. Job's a great example of that. And so the point of all three illustrations is that God has not forgotten these believers and in their waiting for God to intervene, to rescue them, they were not to give up. They were not to give up on God, but they were to keep being faithful and to keep persevering no matter what. No matter what. And that's what, Job is, uh, that's what James is reminding us of. As he was reminding them, he's reminding us of this incredible truth this morning. And then our last verse is verse 12 that we'll look at this morning. 
And he says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Now, it's important to understand that most Greek letters would end with an oath certifying that the letter is true. But instead, James quotes Jesus here. Matthew chapter 5, 33 through to 37, and argues that Christians shouldn't have to take oaths, oaths to prove what they're saying is true. Because when you take an oath, when you say, I promise you, it divides your speech into two categories. On the one hand, when you say, I promise you, then people sit up and say, wow, that must be true. But when you don't preface your statement or end your statement with I promise you, then they wonder, well, is what he's saying or she's saying really true? And so James is saying here, everything needs to be true. That everything we say needs to be like an oath sworn before God. Good reminder, hey? I'm going to try my best never to preface a statement with I promise you. Or honestly, or rarely, because when I don't say that, are you going to believe that what I'm saying is true? And this is what James is saying here. And so for me, there are four big rocks in this passage that we've read this morning. And I think there are four things that God wants to minister to different people on. Maybe for you, all four, maybe three, maybe one. But I do believe God wants to Encourage. He wants to challenge, but he wants to minister mostly into our hearts through these things. And the first thing I want to say to some of you this morning is don't exclude God from your plans, be they future plans or even financial plans, and somehow think that you can make a go of it on your own. And so rather than being self-sufficiency, a self-sufficient or having a self-sufficiency which James tells us leads to arrogance. Rather have a God-sufficiency and a God-reliance that displays humility. The second group, God might be saying to you this morning, live with eternity in your hearts and not for the here and the now. Don't allow the temporal and the, or the temporal pursuits and the pleasures of life be the dominant theme of your life. Make decisions based on eternity, not just the now. And for the third group, and I feel this is a key one, and it came through wonderfully in our pre-service prayer this morning, is that God wants to teach I want to say every one of us, not just some. Patience, perseverance, especially in those times of hardships, trials, and sufferings. That he wants to develop perseverance in you. Because his whole goal, his aim in all of our lives, is for us to come to a place of maturity and completeness in him. And then lastly, he would say, To you, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no, 
in the way that you speak honestly and truthfully to others. Let your word be your word. I'm going to ask Rhonda to come up. Rhonda felt something in the prayer meeting. I want her to share that. I want you just to bow your heads. Let's hear what God's saying here. I've just heard the words, don't give up, on my heart all week. And I felt it had to do with um, prayer needs in our lives and things we might have been praying about and believing for for a long, long time and not having seen an answer or, or, or in our understanding not having seen the answer that we were looking for. And I feel like there are people here who are on the point of feeling like God's not listening, he doesn't hear my prayer, obviously, because it's taken so long. But he's wanting to let you know, he's wanting to reassure you this morning of his love, that he has heard your prayer, he heard it the first time you prayed it. But there are circumstances that he needs to get lined up before it's the right timing for that prayer to be answered. And he's asking you to trust him. He's asking you, will you keep praying? Will you keep persevering in this? Because I'm for you. I'm with you. I haven't left you. I can see everything that's going on. I can see all the circumstances surrounding your life. But I'm working on a big picture I'm working on a much bigger picture. And in order for my prayer to, for your prayer to be answered, there's some other things that have got to come into place. And I'm working on your heart. And I want you to come into a deeper relationship with me. It's all about me and you. And I want you to trust me with that answer to prayer. Keep praying. Don't give up. Father, we hear that this morning. Even the parable you gave regarding a persistent widow is that you told the disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Lord, we ask that that would be true of us. That for some of us who may have lost hope, where we may think, well, that'll never happen. Lord, I ask this morning you would encourage hearts afresh to realize that in you and in your timing, all things are possible. But I pray specifically equally for those, Lord, who are going through tough times, who are going through a struggle. It could be a marital issue, a relational, financial, circumstantial. But for some of you, you you feel like you've hit a wall. And there's just no way through. But God wants to remind you again this morning that if he's with you, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with him. And he would want to remind you to stand firm in your faith. And after you've done everything to stand, to keep standing, to keep holding on to him, to keep believing that he is with you, that he is for you, 
And he is, he is able to do all things in you and with you and through you. And he would say, likewise to you this morning, do not give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And some of you, you're on the verge of breakthrough. Don't give up. Don't waste the affliction. But see it as an investment. See what God is doing in the midst of it. How he's working his great purposes out in your life. Respond to him this morning. Let his voice be the loudest in your heart and your mind. Not the noise of your circumstances. But what he would speak over you this morning. When he'd say, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm working things out for your good because you love me and because you called according to my purposes. And Father, whoever that may be true for this morning, I ask that you would release fresh faith in their heart, a faith to stand, a faith to persevere, and a faith to break through because you are the God of breakthrough. Only you, Lord. And that's why we hold on to you and we keep looking to you. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we're able to, to digest in the book of James. And I pray, Father, that as we take these things, what we've heard this morning, we would not do what James told the readers not to do, and that is to Look at yourself in a mirror and then immediately go away and forget what you look like. Lord, help us to be doers of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.